Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, we've got an interesting one today, you know, for a change. William Crystal is my guest. William Crystal, the neocon Al? Yes. And I'll tell you why. In some ways, to me, Bill Crystal has been one of the most interesting, prominent, never-Trumpers. Most of the, the others who you see or hear or read were political operatives. You know, uh, the Lincoln Project guys, uh, Michael Steele. Bill Crystal comes from a much more academic, uh, intellectual place. And I thought I'd try to get some sense of not just how he, he came to an anti-Trump stance, uh, which is not, frankly, that hard to figure out, but how the establishment Republican Party's full embrace of Trump and Trumpism has made him uh, rethink some of his own past beliefs. We recorded the conversation the day before the president's address before the joint session of Congress on Wednesday, which I thought was extraordinary, especially in its ambition. Basically, it's like Biden got his team together right after the inaugural parade. He just walked into the White House, got everybody in the Oval Office, and the president's behind his desk. And president Biden says, you know what, everybody? Why don't we just do everything we've always known we should do, but haven't, and then do them? And everyone says, what a great idea, Mr. President. And the president says, Ron? To Ron Klain, of course. And Klain says, well, of course, Mr. President, without much cooperation from the Trump people, we've been preparing for the unprecedented logistical challenge of vaccinating 320 million Americans. Right, Ron, I'm up to date on that. I want you guys on that day and night. Badisha, Mr. President, we've been working the COVID relief package, and get this, we're including a $3,000 child tax credit to reduce childhood poverty by half. Excellent, Badisha. By the way, uh, during the speech, President Biden noted that, that the $3,000 child tax credit would, would cut childhood poverty in half. There was a shot of the chamber. Not every Republican was on camera, but not one of them applauded that. Now, it's kind of a tradition. It's kind of something that you're supposed to do is applaud Something that's an unalloyed good, reducing childhood poverty by half. You kind of have to applaud that. Eh, I don't know. Reduce childhood poverty by half. Nah, don't like it. I'm a Republican. So the meeting in the, in the Oval Office continues. Mr. President, I've been uh, working on the infrastructure package, and we think... It would be a good idea to bring our country's infrastructure up to the level of other countries, other advanced countries, or surpass them and create millions of jobs for the very people who have been hurting, blue-collar folks who may not have a college degree. You think that would be a good idea? Absolutely, Lujuan. 
And that's exactly what we're going to do. Great, sir. That'd be about $2 trillion. Fine. We can't afford not to do it. Thank you, sir. And we're going to make our energy grid as low carbon as possible to address the greatest existential threat to mankind, sir. Great. Is anyone writing this down? Uh, no, Mr. President. Um, let me get an, uh, a legal pad. Uh, anybody, anybody, anybody got a legal pad or a pen? Huh? Mr. President, how about early childhood education? Of course, Tamika. A child who gets early childhood education is much, much more likely to graduate high school and go to college and get a good job and not go to prison or get pregnant in adolescence. That, that's just a huge priority. I got the legal pad, Mr. President. Good work, Emil. And as long as we're on education, let's make sure every kid goes to a good school, that the resources of your school doesn't just depend on property taxes. What a great idea, Mr. President. Yeah, yeah. So that every kid can go to a school that has a good physical plant and can pay for after school and great teachers. Great, Mr. President. I, I wrote that down, too. Uh, keep writing them down, Emil. Mr. President, I have an idea. Why don't we make the most profitable corporations in the country pay taxes? Great idea, Corinne. It, it's Karen, sir. Also, it's not my idea, Mr. President. I, I've heard other people suggest that, you know, for years. Mr. President, as long as we're doing that, sir, since one of the problems is the huge gaps in wealth and income in this country, what if we made those at the top who can afford it pay more taxes? I like it, Tara. You mean like bring the marginal tax rate for people making over $400,000 back up to what they were at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration? Yes, sir, Mr. President. And we could hire back a lot of the IRS agents that Trump fired and have them audit very rich people instead of poor people like the IRS does now. Hey, slow down, everybody. I'm trying to get this down. Mr. President, we could also hire back the scientists at the EPA. In fact, why don't we just invest more in science and basic research? I don't like it, Siobhan. I love it. Like DARPA, sir, which gave us the internet. Good point, Latifa. Speaking of which, shouldn't every American have access to the internet? Broadband for everyone. That's great, Mr. President. Hey, I have another idea. I have one. I have one. Hey, I have one. How about making life a little easier for people? You know, by giving some family leave in case someone gets sick or something. You mean like every other developed country has, Tanui? Let's do it. Yay! You know what people care about, Mr. President? Healthcare. Oh, yeah. When Barack and I got the ACA done, it was a big fucking deal. Well, Mr. President, with all due respect, you should have said that to President Obama at the time. Actually, I did, Tamika. That was a joke, sir. <laughs> okay, everybody, I think this was a really good first session. These are all great ideas. No reason we shouldn't do all of them. So that was the first meeting of the team right after the inaugural. And basically, this president has just said, why don't we just do the things we've been saying we should do for years and years? And I applaud him. So, William Crystal, 
will be with us right after this word from one of our commendable sponsors. We've got a great one today for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. My guest today is William Crystal. I can call him Bill Crystal because we were classmates at the University of Minnesota Duluth where he played hockey and drank a lot of beer. He loved beer, but he was able to enroll in the political science PhD program at Harvard uh, by pretending to be the son of Irving Crystal, the father of neoconservatism, and Gertrude Himmelfarb, the noted intellectual historian. How am I doing so far, Bill? Am I close? Excellent, excellent. It's about 50% true and 50% <laughs> okay. not, good. which is kind of what I expect, frankly, so that's good. Yeah, that's, that's what we pride ourselves in. <laughs> uh, I think you know, most of uh, my listeners know you and your career as a as a journalist, uh, a member of the three last uh, Republican administrations, uh, publisher of the uh, Weekly Standard, and uh, a, a frequent uh, talking head. Your your head uh, talks a lot. <laughs> and as one of the uh, early Republican anti-Trumpers uh, to speak out against uh, the former president. Now we talked a couple weeks ago, right, uh, about what subjects. We should cover, and and uh, we decided on Biden's first 100 days, and I want to do that right out of the box because uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, April 27th, which scientists uh, tell us is the 98th day of the Biden presidency. Uh, so, so we're going to do that first, but after that, this is what I want to do. I want to ask you about your evolution over the last five or so years, and I'm not. It may be more because. So many of the prominent talking head anti-Trumpers are basically political types. The Lincoln Project guys were all campaign guys. Michael Steele's chair of the uh, Republican Party. Charlie Sykes had a conservative political talk show. And uh, I just want to hear about your 
journey. So the only correction I'll bother making is the, uh, I wasn't in either the W. Bush or the uh, Trump administration. So it was actually been a long time. I left the, I left the White House. Uh, I was in the, I was in the, the Reagan and first Bush administrations. And that's, God, it's hard to believe. It's almost Oh, wait, wait a minute. Ago. Did I say the last three? That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't even count Trump as a yeah, well, Republican. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So <laughs> two of the last three pre-Trump. And uh, you know, speaking of journeys, can I just one thing? Do you remember this? I don't know. It's stuck in my mind. We met, we were on a train together, DC, New York, I think, typical kinds of trains people like us take, you know? Right. In, in the Acela. They're probably not for class i think just the coach class you know of course and, not. Uh, yes what was that though we chatted about trump and you i was already sort of anti-trump and we were agreeing on that but you were shrewd about that it was more dangerous and could be more lasting and he could dominate things at least on the republican side more than people expected i can't remember if that was during the campaign or maybe that was 2017 do you vaguely remember this or you're too you you consign all these meetings with fans on trains to just the the memory holes since you had so many of them I actually, well, thank you for, because uh, I sound really smart there. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for recalling that. I Let's talk about the first 98 days, because this is uh, the 98th day, April 27th, when we're recording this, and then it'll drop on the 102nd day. But um, go ahead. Uh, what do you think of uh, Biden's performance? Oh, good. I mean, impressive. And uh, I, when you're too close to it, as I am, and, you know, here in Washington, watching, knowing some of the people and watching every little zig and zag, and I disagree with that. And I would have emphasized this. And I wish he hadn't mm-hmm. had this line and things. But if you step back, <laughs> I mean, if you had said uh, 100 days ago that, you know, we'd, the, we'd have made the progress we made on vaccines, that the economy would be coming back, that the country would have calmed down, unclear, you know, on some of the political reform stuff, how much progress he'll be able to make and whether, and and so I think he's done very well. I mean, the biggest disappointment since November 3rd has been the Republican Party, which has not at all liberated itself from Trump and Trumpism in some ways, amazingly, has dug deeper or doubled down, you might almost say, after January 6th instead of the opposite. But the degree to which Biden is governing, in my view, is a kind of responsible Democrat, obviously, to the left of me on a bunch of issues, but uh, serious and um, sober and with a competent administration. Uh, I think that's I think it's been important. I do worry about, you know, McConnell. I worry about the Republicans. I mean, on the, um, you know, Recovery Act, American Recovery Act, not one in, in in either house, not one Republican vote on something that like sixty five percent of Americans favored. It reminded me of you know two thousand nine and two thousand ten and eleven and twelve when they just did not want to help Obama at all, and you know record number of filibusters and no cooperation. And we actually remember. Very early on, they they did this uh, sequester thing. We we that we got to a point where they almost defaulted on the debt right. <laughs> and and uh, held a gun to basically to Obama's head and everybody's head and made us cut spending. They're still the same people. I mean, McConnell is going to just. Uh, I I'm afraid he's going to keep doing this. Now maybe on infrastructure we'll come up with something. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it would be very good for the country uh, for there to be something bipartisan that passes, whether it's infrastructure, immigration, conceivably voting rights. That looks. It's like not going to be immigration. Isn't 
I don't know. I like, don't think kind of a little bit on the border in return for DACA and some increase in the legal immigration quotas. Maybe not, but I don't think it has to be a majority of Republicans by any means. I just think it would be healthy for the country and frankly would help those of us trying to liberate the, the Republican Party a little bit, at least from Trump and Trumpism, to have 10 or 15 or 20 Republican votes for some of these bills. Now, having said that, the reason there aren't going to be those, or there, there, there may not be those votes, <laughs> is of course, that they're, they're all intimidated and terrified by 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 the Trump phenomenon. But look, I mean, the fact is that the 10 House Republicans and seven Republican senators, much too small a number in my opinion, but who voted for impeachment and for conviction, it sort of made a difference. It had a dynamic of its own. Liz Cheney has kind of stayed the course on that. And again, she made a, many more accommodations than I would have over the preceding four years, but at least it reminds people that there is a possibility of being a pretty staunch ideological opponent without being hostile to American democracy and seeking to overturn election results. And it would be, so I'm hopeful, I'm a little, and I, I guess my contrarian streak thinks everyone else is saying there can't possibly be any bipartisan deal on anything. So maybe there can be on at least a few things, but. Um, well, I think that on the George Floyd. Yeah. Police is a, a good one. Yeah. I, I think that's going to my, what I'm hearing is that there will be some compromise on that and that that will happen. So that would be, if you could get police reform of something through, and then people look, I mean, the one thing about compromise is people are allowed to come back two years later or a year later and try to get more. I mean, if people are unhappy on the left with some stuff that they have to give up to get Tim Scott and all that, I, I think it would be worth it. And it's, I mean, I feel there, this is asymmetric as the Republicans have the bulk of the blame on this, but I do think actually it's in the country's interest for the Biden administration to bend over backwards or per be perceived at least honestly to be bending over backwards to try to find one or two pieces of legislation at least where they can get some bipartisan support. I think it would help him politically, but I also think it would just help defuse things. And I mean, the degree to which Republicans and not even Trump Republicans, just let's say established Republicans have bought the line that this Biden administration is a bunch of woke lunatics who, you know, desperately are seeking to shut down capitalism, take their guns, take their free speech, impose whatever the craziest thing that's happening in one private school on the Upper East Side of New York, impose that on the entire country. I mean, and I don't like some of these left-wing things that are happening in woke elite schools on the Upper East Side and so forth, but the idea, the degree of craziness in the Republican Party is really uh, astounding. And it hasn't gotten better. That's, uh, for me, one of the biggest stories of the last, what, six months or so. It hasn't gotten better despite the fact that Trump is gone. Yeah, it's it's frightening. They are afraid of their base, right? That's what it is. They're just afraid. I mean, they're afraid of Trump because they're afraid of his base. And this gets down to something I talk about all the time. My listeners hear me talk about it, which is the kind of two universes of information, yeah. information and disinformation. And boy, oh boy, there's, I, I think a lot of most maybe all of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th actually believe the election was stolen. No, I think it's a horrible disinformation echo chamber problem and all that made worse by social media and all that. And, th and then there's the thing that makes it uh, really compounds the problem a lot, which is the elite Republicans who don't believe a lot of the stuff. They're not idiots. You know, they know the election wasn't stolen. They know that uh, Biden's not going to restrict you to one hamburger a week or whatever the latest insane Fox News thing was. <laughs> but they want some of the Republican policies and they're just willing to go along with that and indulge that. That's really the Mitch McConnell types, you might say. Kevin McCarthy, somewhat more craven version of, of, of the same thing. And those people. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
someone's more craven than McConnell. Well, yeah, I know you have you served for them, so you know better. But well, McConnell did sort of did stand up against overturning the election, sort of belatedly, where sort of kind voted of, to do so. In a way. so it's, it's something. Don't of, you do that right of, away? <laughs> Don't you do now, that? No, believe like... me, I'm against. So I dislike <laughs> one, and I disapprove of all of them. But there are some slight things. But again, I think the conservative elites. I don't know. We're curious what we think about this. Everyone's so focused on the base, which is a terrible problem that 30% or something of America believes in totally ridiculous and insane conspiracies and, and, and so forth. But that the elites have gone along with it and tried to manipulate it to their own advantage and not stood up against it has been extremely damaging. The Wall Street Journal editorial page has not done as much damage as Fox News, but they've done a lot of damage. And, and mostly by going along with the damage that's being done by Fox News or rationalizing it or excusing it or minimizing it. We'll be right back with Bill Crystal, who served in the Reagan administration and the George H.W. Bush administration, not in the W administration or, of course, the Trump administration. I got that wrong in the intro, and I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. But we'll be right back, and I won't make any mistakes, I think, in, in the next part. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, well, let's... Uh, let's- kind of weighed in now then to you and your I, I don't know how much of a transformation there's been for you in terms of in the last how much is tied to Trump I imagine a lot of it is but you know as I said a lot of these guys you see the talking heads you see that are you know the the, the Michael Steele's the uh, Steve Schmitz the Rick Wilson's they're campaign people. They're political people. You're an intellectual. You're you're someone who has a you know PhD in political science. You're a journalist. You write about this and have been a thought leader in uh, conservative circles. How have you changed? And is, is it did it start with Trump or did it start earlier? I think Trump provoked the reaction which led to some rethinking. I mean, I think that's natural. You can't just have an event like Trump happen. I think it'd be hard to say, well, everything was great and this thing just came out of nowhere and I'm not going to rethink any of my previous positions when I see my previous allies going off in this, or at least if not allies, kind of people I 
you know, vaguely on the same side of going off in this horrible direction. So I think you'd have to be pretty foolish, frankly, not to rethink some things. So I've tried to do some rethinking. And it's. I think I just got, like a lot of people, too dogmatic, too partisan. I, I thought of myself as being sort of contrary and willing to take on Republican orthodoxies. And I think I did in some areas. And I you know, supported things that the Obama administration did, especially in some of the first term and some of the foreign policy things. And uh, certainly in Clinton's years, I did uh, support many of their things. So I wasn't, I don't think, the worst of the, you know, uh, uh, kind of partisan types, but mm-hmm. in retrospect, I, I think I I didn't see certain things as clearly as I should have. I, I fought some things. I fought Pat Buchanan. I fought Ron Paul. I, I was clear-eyed. I think about some of those aspects of the conservative movement, but I underestimated their strength and how much other people were willing to go along with them. So, yes, the short answer, the long answer, the short version of this long answer is I've done a fair amount of rethinking of my own past. I mean, I would say I've been. It's been easier for me, maybe a little bit. Because Charlie Sykes and I, who you mentioned, who's very thoughtful and wrote a good book about this, actually, um, we both were Democrats when we were kids. I mean, literally kids, like in high school and stuff. Um, I, you know, volunteered for Hubert Humphrey in '68. I worked for Scoop Jackson when I was at Harvard in '72. I mean, volunteered, beginning of my very successful political career. Scoop ran seventh, I think, in the Massachusetts primary um, that year behind Wilbur Mills. And I actually worked for Pat Moynihan in the 76 uh, primary. That's right, so that's I was right. I was a kind of a Humphrey Moynihan, you know, Democrat, and then became a Reagan Republican, like many other people by 1980. So I always had a little bit of a memory that, hey, there were there are decent Democrats. Pat Moynihan was a friend. You know, I mean, I, I my parents had many friends of that sort. So I, I, I think that made it a little easier for me maybe to – to break, frankly, with the Republican Party and to say, look, I'm voting for Joe Biden, no ifs, ands, and buts about it, no big apologies or no no big angst or anguish about voting for a Democrat. You know, so I, I think it maybe was a little easier for me, I'm saying, is than someone who kind of really just grew up in the fold and had a tougher time breaking out. Sure. And I, I, I think it isn't difficult if you're clear-eyed to go like what the hell is trump and do do what all of those guys i mentioned uh did uh stuart stevens wrote a book it was all a lie i, mm-hmm. I don't know if you read that or looked at it or as pat moynihan who i mentioned used to say this is i think a line he went to my used to my my mother my mother would tell me he once used they were pretty good friends and it was pat was a senator a very busy man and he started going on about some book that was like a 600 page biography of i don't know Yates or something. I'm making that up. But you know what I mean? Something that was not required reading as your senator. It was going on about it, very interesting, this and that. And my mom said to Pat, Pat, you have, you've read that time, you've read that whole book. And Pat said, blah, blah, blah. I've read in it. <laughs> so I've read in, I've read in Stuart Stevens's book, which is a very wonderful, vague way of, you've read something between the jacket flap and the, uh, you know, and, and, and a whole, and whole chapter. That was a pretty good Moynihan, by the way. Oh, that, yeah, I knew him. For yeah, a moment. Yeah. It's pretty easy to imitate, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, you don't hear many Moynihan impressions. You just don't. <laughs> <laughs> These days, especially. Yeah, right. Anyway, but Stuart was saying, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of where I focused in on that, which mm-hmm. is when uh, uh, W was running. He ran, I remember that first debate, and he said, by far the vast majority of my tax cuts go to those at the bottom. And they didn't. They just didn't. It wasn't even close, you know. <laughs> and also, they supposedly, Republicans cared about deficits. I remember that. And and I had this experience when I got in there where that's what Republicans seemed to care about with deficits. But they piled up 
huge deficits under Reagan to a great extent under uh, H.W., who did raise taxes a little, and that, that cost him his presidency probably to a great extent, and that's what got Buchanan and all that stuff. Right. But it seems like Republicans really care about deficits and the debt when there's a Democrat as president. Do you acknowledge that? I mean, it's obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a certain amount of – someone had this put this point well in the bulwark the other day. I just can't remember who it was. Maybe Jonathan Last, my colleague, who's very sharp and acerbic writer, that there's a big difference between, though – having a, let's say, a partisan interpretation of reality, a stress of certain, <laughs> of certain facts at the expense of others, you know, kind of wishful thinking about your side, and just living in a totally different reality. You know what I mean? I really feel like that, it, it has been a, there's been some gradations along the way, but I think it's been a sort of a, there is a difference between putting a, a rosy picture of some economic policies or exaggerating the benefits to the working class of some tax cuts because of arguments about trickle down or whatever, on the one hand, and the kind of what's what we've seen under Trump. But having said that, look, I think there was, there's been a fair amount of that on on the Republican side, a little bit, obviously, on the Democratic side. I was a McCain uh, supporter in 2000. That was such a bitter race that, you know, actually, for all that, I was a hawk and supported a lot of the foreign policy stuff after 9-11. Uh, I was not on particularly good terms with the Bush team, maybe a little bit in the second term when things, you know, by the McCain thing was already kind of been, been a long time ago. So, and I think the McCain thing, I would say, I'll say the one thing, supporting McCain, who I'd gotten to know in the 90s, really, because we were both hawkish on foreign policy. We both supported, ironically, Clinton on Bosnia and Kosovo and those kinds of things. Um, that encounter with the kind of the pre-Trump Republican establishment was a bit of a wake-up call for me. You know, I was a young person in the first Bush and Reagan administrations. I looked up to these people. I didn't really know them well. You know, I just thought, well, they're pretty impressive. To see them up close in the you know, the Carl Rose of the world was not a particularly uh, edifying uh, sight or experience. <laughs> so I think, again, I may have been a little more prepared for the kind of terrible disappointment in the Republican Party that I saw pretty close up in, 20, <laughs> in 2016. But okay. I'm still astonished. Aren't you? This gets back to our show. I want to ask you this question on, okay, on the strange sure. conversation. I mean, aren't you a little... Trump as president would have been bad news, obviously, very bad for the country and so forth. But but if Republicans had stood up to him in Congress, it would have been a much more manageable and containable problem. The, the enabling of Trump, the capitulation to Trump, the the letting him and helping him take over the party, which we're now still seeing the effects of, of course, that I, I guess I didn't fully expect that. And and that really is 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 the cause of so much of the damage. It's one thing to have a bad president for four years, something to have one of the two major political parties basically often conspiracy land and anti-democratic land and, you know, the whole thing, right? Fox News land. And it's a little different, I think. First of all, during that campaign, right, um, before he got the nomination, right. all my Republican colleagues were just aghast that this guy was doing well. And if you look at it, of course he did well because of, first of all, all the other candidates were terrible candidates, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they yeah. just they just yeah. were and yeah. secondly i i think you've said this like starting like 2014 or something people started in, in the united states started saying you know what my kids aren't going to do better than i do. yeah 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 bill galston the guy at brookings who i've done some work with says he could see it in the polls around 2013 14 the comeback was happening a little bit the recovery from 08 you know and then it stalled out it didn't stall out it just was slow and people sort of realized that if their kids hadn't had four years of college and 
you know, maybe it had some problems, uh, they might well not even make it to their standard of living. I don't know how widespread that is really. If you look at the data, it's a little complicated, but I think that was a moment where there was a lot of unhappiness and anxiety to be exploited by someone like Trump, you know? And I think that was, and I think also he exploited uh, identity politics, racial politics, uh, people's feeling that anything that helps people of color takes away from me. Yeah. All of that. And I also remember like watching the South Carolina debate and South Carolina, big military state, right? A lot of veterans there Mm -hmm. and, and bases. And he said like the war in Iraq was a mistake and, (laughs) and no Republican had ever said that was running for president had ever said something like that. And the crowd agreed. Mm-hmm. In in this very conservative, very military state, he was tuned in in a way that the others weren't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And also, he had this gift of being able to get up in front of a crowd and riff for an hour in an entertaining way. Mm-hmm. I mean, entertaining in the sense of, you know, it, like watching a guy bite the head off a chicken is entertaining, (laughs) but like, you know, uh, but still, um, it, and you know, kind of funny in an odd way, whether you're laughing at him or with him and they were laughing with him, And, you know, I, I still believe that I'm going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it was just something he said. And the crowd went nuts and that became part of the thing, right? I think more broadly, a friend of mine who had been involved has passed away, who was involved in presidential campaigns, said he watched Trump and he thought Trump could win right from the beginning. Because Trump did what you have to do if you're a good can- to be a good candidate is he, he really learned from the crowds and learned from what he tested a ton of things. The ones that didn't go anywhere, he just sort of quietly tossed aside. He was in that way a little more disciplined than people realize. And the stuff that took off, he just milked and milked and milked until it finally hit diminishing returns, if it ever did, with the immigration stuff, the Mexicans on the wall, the Muslim ban, you know. And, and he just was willing to, of course, say incredibly irresponsible demagogic things that others weren't really willing to say. And he was clever. He was a good demagogue, right? He was a clever at figuring out what would push people's buttons, and then he just kept pushing them. As opposed to like Rubio <laughs> or Jeb, you know. I mean, Jeb, <laughs> I give credit. Jeb earnestly believed what he believed and said it and probably knew he wasn't going to win pretty early and, and attacked Trump, actually, to his credit. Whereas Rubio was much more pathetic, I thought. I'm not sure if that was – I was a little surprised. I had a slightly higher opinion of him. but Yeah. He, he just uh, – all I'm saying is they were running conventional campaigns in a year you couldn't do that or against a guy who was just – completely separated himself from everybody and also took all the airtime because CNN would be, oh, he's speaking? Let's, wait a minute, his plane is about to land? Let's go to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. and, and, you get a, and you get a situation where people are kind of unhappy with the way things have been going. And the Republican frontrunner's named Bush literally would have been the third unprecedented, the third member of the family to be president within, what, 30 years. And the uh, Democratic frontrunner nominee is named Clinton, the wife of former president <laughs> and former secretary of state under Ob- President Obama. So it was sort of like you couldn't have a better setup for a outsider, insurgent, you know, shake things up, drain the swamp. It was really, that's which is why I will say my, I was totally wrong about the primaries. I thought Trump would be just another, you know, Herman Cain, kind of Buchanan, troublemaker, 
outsider businessman, Steve Forbes, would fall short. The Republican Party had a pretty good track record at that point of nominating the Doles and the Bushes and the Romneys and the McCains. But anyway, he saw the opportunity. In the general, I always thought he had a chance to win. I mean, I remember saying this on TV many times and being on with some of Hillary's people who were intelligent political types, and they were very confident. And I was, yeah, I thought she would probably win. That's what the poll suggested. But I thought it was like a one in four chance that she wouldn't, that Trump would win, because there was such an outsider sentiment. And uh, I just never underestimate that willingness to vote for change and to take a risk for change and to discount the risks, foolishly, in fact, you know, in terms of like what, what damage the guy could do. I remember having so many arguments in 2016. I went to a Trump rally in Northern Virginia and someone berated me. They knew I was anti-Trump. And I said, well, I think it's pretty dangerous. No, he's going to shake things up. And I made some sort of you know, platitude in his comment. Well, if you shake things up too much, sometimes it's not like you don't have a good outcome, you know, the, the whole house falls down or whatever. And uh, whatever the metaphor, no, it couldn't be, it couldn't get worse, Bill. It couldn't get worse. Uh, you know, couldn't get the, worse than, right. it, than it is today. It's like, really? In America in 2016? I don't know. You know, but, but that was, people talked themselves into that. Okay. But let's, let's talk about just your, again, I want to get back yeah. to sort of, do you mind being called an intellectual or is that a bad no, term? No, I don't care. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're not offended by it, at least. Okay. So, uh, but tell me just about what you've changed about. Like, for example, were you against the ACA when it happened? Yes. I mean, I think I'm kind of standard conservative. We want a tax credit. It's not a bunch of government-run exchanges. I mean, I think that was a, I'd say I haven't changed much in foreign policy where I remain a kind of unrepentant. Uh, into hawkish internationalists. Well, let's uh, talk. We'll talk about that in a, in okay. a little bit. Okay. I mean, I was wrong about some details. I would guarantee Grant, but I think, and I actually somewhat <laughs> happy We're all with the Biden wrong administration. On stuff. Happy with the Biden administration <laughs> so far on that. I was v- wrong in on race to a considerable degree. I mean, I'm not wrong. In that. I mean, I was a liberal civil rights person in the '60s and all that, obviously in, in New York, and I wasn't, you know, a right winger exactly on race, but I. I just underestimated the problems of you know, policing and of all the kind of uh, the things that have been so visible in the that's last. That's uh, pre-cell phone. Yeah, yeah. No, it is in a way. And also, I look. I'm from New York. Uh, they Giuliani. New York looked like it was falling apart and going down the tubes, and had a pretty amazing comeback over about twenty years. And I was one of those who probably thought, yeah, Giuliani probably did a couple of things with the cops he shouldn't have done. But at the end of the day, it was it was in everyone's interest, including African Americans and poor people, that the city got much safer, which isn't totally false, obviously. And so I, I think on those kinds of issues, I was just much too complacent, sort of, in a kind of conventional center center right attitude. Economics, I've rethought some, but I'm pretty much a free market, free trade, uh, liberal immigration person. Uh, but I mean, well, you know, income inequality is a problem, and we, there are ways to deal with that. A pretty, pretty conventional, you know, views on that, I guess, in terms of just make the tax code somewhat more progressive and and all that. Um, well, I'd like to hear that about that too. Okay, well, I just, I mean, <laughs> that is to say one reason I sort of like the Biden stuff is that a lot of what he's done is not you know, try to run the country from Washington, big government programs, micromanaging. It's like, you know what? People need more money to help in this emergency and help bring up their kids and help their little their small businesses keep going. So let's just give them some more money. In a way, it's a in that respect, it's a sort of, I won't say neoconservative, but you know, it's more of a, it's not a, a big government a, you know, expertise kind of activism as much as it is, you know, what if we have to run debts, we have to run debts and we just need to help people make it through this period. And so I'm, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to that. Yeah. But we'll um, move to the next, that, that stuff that you, 
maybe yeah so some of that stuff has to happen if you want to get serious (laughs) about clean it even on like some clean energy i'm pretty struck that a lot of it is pretty again it, it gets a little more uh you know intrusive i guess you'd say but a lot of it is incentives and kind of uh and stuff like that. Carbon so, tax? Are you for yes, I, we published thing? like yeah. 30 articles in favor of a carbon tax and the Weekly Standard. But it was the kind of classic thing that liberal and conservative economists would agree on, that if you were going to get more tax revenue, that was a sensible way to do it. It's one of the things Biden doesn't have, ironically, right, in his proposal. It's kind of funny in a way. I, I, I think that the, uh, most liberals for a carbon tax are for a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Mm-hmm. So uh, so people are for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, right. that the money goes back to people who, because gasoline, the price of gasoline is like the most important thing to a lot of people. Yeah. So there are ways to rebate that to lower middle income people and stuff. And that's been part of the different kinds of proposals. And uh, you could have an equivalent payroll tax cut. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, we're good on that. What else have I changed? So I you're mean, bad was... on race. You're bad on race. You're a racist. Yeah, no, I'm joking. I'm. It was a joke. It was a joke. I know, joke. Yeah, these days, I joke. I used to be in comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what else? Race. <laughs> I mean, I think I just earnestly was too conservative with a little C, and I think a you know in a in a in a well-meaning way, if I could say. I mean, about a bunch of issues. <laughs> Marriage would be an example. I mean, I just thought you know <laughs> in a well-meaning way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, thought it's like it's risky to experiment with institutions, but around all this time, I just didn't really appreciate. I haven't. And I'm happy we are where we are now on same-sex marriage and on a whole bunch of issues like that. Well, but you I know, just, Clinton was for uh, the Defense of Marriage Act. Yeah, and Obama and, uh, wasn't he signed for, it, uh, and Obama wasn't for it. It evolved, and so, uh, so that evolved so don't, don't feel too embarrassed about that. So, well, incidentally, what is your sense of the Biden administration? You know more about it than I do. I mean, you're you actually know very <laughs> senior Democrats quite well. So, here's my sense of it. Uh, here's my sense of at least what's going on in. Uh, the Senate and 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 what's going on and that that's to do, of course, with getting this legislation done. I think it's really interesting what Manchin is doing, mm-hmm. and I think that first of all, Democrats, liberal, very liberal Democrats, very progressive Democrats, should thank God that Joe Manchin is in the Senate <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, yeah. because uh Biden lost West Virginia by forty points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, the fact that Manchin is there is the reason we have the majority. So he uh, has been kind of crafty, I think, on on this. And he basically wrote a, a op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I- "I'm against getting rid of the filibuster or weakening it." He didn't say modifying. He didn't say I'm against modifying. He just said I'm against weakening it. But he said, what I want to do is get back to regular order, basically is what he said, Hmm. which means you have hearings in committees and then you write bills in committee, you pass them out of committee, they go to the floor, you have an open amendment process, right? Mm -hmm. We haven't really had that in a while. He wants to do that. We could do that if Republicans would cooperate, if they Mm -hmm. would do that. And I have the feeling what he said in that op-ed was, but they better do this. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is a bit of a long game. I, I do think that on infrastructure, I hope, I hope that we they can come to some accommodation. But again, I think it might be funding levels, and it might also be what, what this package. But what Buttigieg is talking about, what I hear is that this is jobs, mm-hmm. and this is jobs for you know blue collar people. And boy, oh boy, you know. As senator, you go around your state 
and you get shown in every community the infrastructure project they want, hmm. right? And you go and you see that the uh, railroad, the tracks, are between the town and the hospital. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that there is a oil train, you know, that lasts 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that an ambulance has to wait 20 minutes while this train passes. And all they want is an underpass, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, and there's millions of those. Let's do those. Yeah, and let and let's let's have you know Americans want uh, infrastructure that looks like the rest of the world, the rest of the developed world. What, are, what am I doing? I'm trying to make the case for an infrastructure, but that's ridiculous. What we're talking about is can we get that done? And mm -hmm. I think that might be the one that goes to reconciliation, actually, mm -hmm. right? Because the, the parliamentarian said they have room for another reconciliation bill, which I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a parliamentarian. So I think that's going to be it, probably. And that'll be good. People will like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't have, I don't hold out a lot of hope for, I think McConnell is just wants to get the Senate back in the midterms and is going to do everything he can to do that. And I think in the past, what he's done is obstruct. Yeah. I mean, we've never come out of a pandemic like this or had a post Trump presidency. So maybe the, you know, the kind of rules of the past don't quite hold in terms of the electoral implications of that. I don't know whether Biden can get how much credit he can get and how much, you know, a Democratic Senate candidate in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin can run as a Biden Democrat and beat uh, Ron Johnson or win two his seat. And that that's a huge question. We just don't, we just don't know at this stage, I think. I think it does depend who Democrats nominate too, obviously. Speaking of Sykes, he he was like a Ron Johnson fan at one time, wasn't he? He sort of, as he like as he says and apologizes a lot. He sort of invented Ron Johnson. I mean, Johnson was this slightly obscure this businessman who gave a speech decided to run as an outsider. I think it was twenty ten, if I've got the yeah, math right. And uh, oh, that's when he won good Republican yeah. year, and so he ran in the primary. And I don't know that he was favored at first or anything. And Charlie kind of was very taken with the speech that he gave and thought, well, this is a genuine outsider. A self-made hmm. businessman, kind of really speak for the. Country. He wasn't a self-made businessman. Let me say something. You know, you know the, the two most important words he said in his business career. I do. Is that right? I didn't know that. Is that true? Okay. Well, yeah. His father-in-law, his wife's dad, <laughs> is like this billionaire okay, <laughs> who, well, so. who has a plastics company, and he sets up his son and his son-in-law in this business. Where the their only customer is the dad's and the father-in-law's plastics business. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's there's a little more of that among the self-made than one than one thinks at first. Maybe though, though we have great examples in America still of that, obviously, but genuine. Uh, no, they're really like Ross Perot was self-made, right? Yeah, yeah, he was a nut, but he was self-made. You yeah. know, <laughs> well, the, a lot of the tech guys. I mean, originally, it's pretty impressive, but. Um, yeah, no, there are people who have done really impressive self-made things. You know who wasn't one of them? Ron Johnson. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Yeah, you would know, you guys, Minnesota, Wisconsin, it's all one big game. He's know. not the brightest, No, may I say? No. <laughs>
but I would not. So I would expect it to be conventional and on, you know, unimaginative and just kind of a, but to go crazy this way, I mean, that does tell you the power of a kind of, I mean, this is what's a little unnerving, not more than a little, what's unnerving about this moment. I mean, the power of a kind of, what a demagogue, you know, sets, uh, lights the match and finds a lot of wood and then uh, it just takes off and everyone else a lot of other people jump on board for the ride to mix metaphors and and the anxieties that can be stirred and the prejudices that can be awakened or reawakened or exaggerated even uh, heightened it's pretty bad and, I, and one thing that I, I find most unnerving is people like it i mean liberals thought these trump people were sullen bitter angry types and there's some truth to that obviously but they liked <laughs> those rallies they were kind of fun from their point of view now they were fun partly yeah. by mocking you know, disabled people and by, you know, flaunting, That's hilarious, by flaunting the their success over, you know, as opposed to African-Americans and so forth. I mean, it's, it's creepy. Scaring, scaring the members of the press. <laughs> yeah, but they, right. But there was, but I mean, I think once people get used to that though, in politics, my point is that's, it's hard to get back away. From, it's hard to get, remind people, you're not supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to refrain from enjoying being a bully and part of a mob, but people like being parts of mobs, at least temporarily, I guess, history suggests that. And uh, it's satisfying in some visceral way, and it's and that's what scares me the most about the current moment. I mean, the, the mob spirit is really alive uh, in, the, in the Republican Party on the right. There's some of it on the left, obviously too, the woke left. And so, it's you know a lot of having a healthy democracy is resisting the mob spirit. Let's go. Let's go to foreign policy. Let's talk first about Afghanistan. I, I think you were against that uh, Biden's decision there. I was. I mean, I didn't, I understand it and I understand that people are awfully tired of it. And, you know, I don't think it, I didn't make a huge deal of it. I mean, but I think it's just imprudent if you can have 3000 troops there and keep an adequate, if not good, you know, better than worst case situation, just stable without much in the way, frankly, of American casualties. And uh, I, I think it would be worth just leave, letting the status quo sit there for, for a while and continue to work on other things, but, you know, in the, in the region and in, in the country. But I understand why Biden did it. I hate the rhetoric of, you know, we're never going to fight these forever wars. I just think you're going to have to have America's American willingness to do peacekeeping and occasional fighting, unfortunately, around the world and and stick with our allies and have force projection and all that. So I am an old fashioned kind of, you know, internationalist of that type, I guess you'd say, uh, uh, still. Well, you know, as Senator, you go to funerals, right? Yeah. And you, uh, talk to families and you want the families to be proud of the service and they should be, they should be. Um, but I talked to more than a few parents who, and spouses, et cetera, who were saying, what the hell are we doing there? Yeah. 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 You know, and, uh, same, you know, same in Iraq. And I, I agree that, you know, a presence there, like a counterterrorism. I mean, this is going to be a disaster. Taliban's going to take over. It's no, going to be a disaster gonna, yeah, for women. Bad. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, I've heard people say like, well, we've been in South Korea since the end of the Korean War. Yeah, South Korea is an industrialized, I mean, it's, right, it's a right. democracy is doing great. Afghanistan is just not going to, that's not going to happen there. This is going to keep going on. And it'd be nice to have some kind of counterterrorism force where we don't have Al-Qaeda anymore, but ISIS can get in there. And right. So and, that, and that's what happened in by withdrawing from Iraq. Right. And I think there are ways, and I think the Biden people are talking a little bit about 
quietly about, well, that doesn't mean we don't literally don't have anyone there in terms of some CT, some counterterrorism and some covert operation. Who knows? You know, maybe they can keep the lid on without an explicit overt, you know, force presence of 3000 or whatever we have. So now um, let's talk about Cheney and Iraq and Rumsfeld. <laughs> so we, I mean, at the Weekly Standard, I and mean, this is, of course, no one remembers any of this on such and side base, but we were very anti-Rumsfeld from the beginning. From before the war, we were worried there weren't enough. We were the McCain, which was, if you're going to do it, send enough troops, stabilize the situation, do a lot of civilian stuff. And so we were very critical, worried before the war that they they thought they could just go in and out. We became strong critics by September of... Uh, of 2003 in Iraq, uh, Rumsfeld banned me and others at the Weekly Standard from the Pentagon. He was so furious at us. I called for him to be fired in 2004. And uh, of course, Bush kept him on for two more years, which was really disastrous because you could still have uh, turned it around more. You know, you could have had the surge two years earlier, it would have been a lot less, a hell of a lot less deaths and a little more of a chance of keeping a kind of, you know, residual force and keeping it in a stable situation. So I was on one of those, I don't know if you ever went to those um, Munich security conferences that McCain used to take a delegation to, and uh, I don't know, or, or Levitt or Lieberman, all those characters, and they'd invite some quote journalist types or foreign policy experts, you know, from previous administrations and so forth on the planes. So it was kind of fun to get to go on as one of these nice US, you know, Air Force planes that the senators get to use and just a long weekend in Munich. So, um, so we, I was, uh, it was 2003. I remember this right before the war. So it's like February of two, January, February of 2003. Uh, Sandy Berger, who had been Bill Clinton's national security advisor, was on the plane, who I knew slightly. And uh, he said, look, I, you know, Hillary voted for the war and I, so I respect your advocacy for it. I think you're, you know, you mean well and all this, but he said, I just don't trust these guys to do it competently, especially Rumsfeld, I think. And I said, so I'm, I'm very, very worried. And I said, yeah, but Kami, once they really go to war, they're not going to be irresponsible and not, and not be serious about getting the right people and generals in there and not just trying to do it in the cheap and all this. And, and Berger said, no, nah, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And, you know, we just left it at that. And there was no argument. We just left it at that. And it's really stuck in my, he died a few years later, kind of young, but I stuck in my mind because, I mean, it's unbelievable when you look at the way Rumsfeld ran the thing. He didn't find the right generals. He just let the people who were next in line run it. They had no guidance, particularly. Then Bremer shows up and then they dismantle the, the army. And I mean, it's just. Yeah, it was basically, uh, you're, you're, you know, you're fired. <laughs> so that was, you're fired now take your weapons with you god no <laughs> and and by the way <laughs> and by the way we're just gonna fire <laughs> oh man we're gonna fire all the, the people know how the electricity works and the water right. works right. and uh we're just going to have chaos and we're not gonna <laughs> <laughs> protect me oh my god that was so stupid and rumsfeld yeah do you remember when the guys started protesting because they didn't have body armor and they weren't under armoring the uh humvees yeah, the, and stuff uh, those yeah the vehicles yeah yeah and that was like a couple years into the war and he said something like uh well you go to war with the you know, military you have, not with the military you want. And he said that longer after 9-11 than Iwo Jima was after Pearl Harbor. <laughs> he he was terrible. Yeah, I remember Gates, one of the first things Gates did when he took over, and I guess it was the very, very beginning of 2007, 
was address that actually. And they, and they told him, well, it'll take us, sir, you know, 24 months for the bidding and the procurement. And he said, screw that. I want this to the next, I don't know what it was, 60 days or something. And he, I think they did do it actually. They up armored these, uh, vehicles i guess so yeah no russell never had for all of his macho talk about being a take charge get it done guy he actually didn't do that in in the uh he he sidelined people who could be critical uh people like petraeus who had different theories about how to fight the war were sort of sent off petraeus was at where was he at uh, leavenworth right in kansas in 2005 2006 writing the manual on counterinsurgency and so yeah, rumsfeld the disastrous rumsfeld is not something i mean since the left tends to want to say they were all terrible and the right uh, got to like Rumsfeld for reasons I can't quite remember. Uh, no one's really held him as a cat. Now Bush has to be held accountable for having a kind of belief, I guess, in Rumsfeld. Maybe he's a little intimidated by him, honestly. I don't know. And Cheney, and Cheney defended Rumsfeld. So there, it was a very, Powell sort of checked out. It was a terrible, I remember talking to the people like me who were hawks on the outside in 2003, four, we were just in despair because there was no one who was like being serious about running this thing. Well, also, I mean, look, remember Cheney said, uh, you know, there's no doubt that Saddam has weapons of mass yeah, destruction. Yeah, well, that was right, 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 right. Okay, and that was not true. And right. um, that was, and also he said that Ada met <laughs> uh, with, you know, Iraq, uh, Iraqis in Prague, right? So a lot of it was based on, you know, they were part of 9-11 and they weren't and that they had weapons of mass destruction and they didn't. And so maybe we shouldn't have done that. Because, you know, you keep Saddam there, they're a counter to Iran that we really weren't once we're in there. I mean, anyway, it it's kind of was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, I'm sorry. It was a great. I mean, that's the only <laughs> thing I'd say is by 2009 when, you know, when President Obama took over, I mean, it was, it was, you know, the weapons of mass destruction, intelligence failure is almost uh, still amazing. And, but, uh, Things weren't, I mean, it didn't destabilize the entire Middle East and all that kind of thing. I wish it had destabilized some of those places more. It just kind of left everything the way it was. And then there was the Arab Spring where the the real disaster was that it's so deterred us from being willing to do much because, you know, it's such a, no one wanted to have another Iraq. So we didn't do anything with Syria. We didn't do anything in a lot of places. And we ended up. Oh, we did something in Libya and that didn't. Yeah, well, then that we just did quickly and then did did no follow up. So, I mean, I, I would argue that. We, the, the combination turned out to be pretty disastrous of, you know, an incompetently fought war based on mistaken arguments, uh, premises, and then the sort of reaction to that incompetently fought and the withdrawal, which then led to ISIS and all. I think we still have opportunities to have a better Middle East, actually, in five or 10 or 20 years. And there's still some positive trends there, actually, despite it all. So maybe that would... Maybe that what, would what, are the, what are those exactly? Well, I do think the Arab Spring remains, you know, the sense that I think this, I think they did puncture, Bush punctured, the notion that those people should just be happy to live under horrible dictatorships forever. It feels to me like there are more people in the Middle East, uh, we may have hurt their chances in some ways, but who really want to fight against that. Now, whether we, how much we can effectually help them and you have, and you have this huge Saudi problem and stuff, I'm not minimizing any of it, but, um, <laughs> and, but of course uh, now we have yeah. authoritarians in Russia and China and everywhere else on the, on the offensive. So it's not a good 
I mean, this is one thing I think people are underestimating. The Biden administration could end up being a pretty kind of major foreign policy challenges to deal with, you know, six months, a year, two months, two years from now. Not just it's not just a you know a domestic policy thing with a couple of foreign policies I chose. I mean, people yeah. understandably are focused for now on the pandemic and and some of the domestic issues, you know, but it could be a little like FDR. People use the FDR comparison, but he was both domestic and foreign policy, right? So he was kind of a pretty good president. Yeah. You know, it's funny uh, when uh, I know Tony Blinken and when he was named secretary of state, I just texted him and I said, well, I hope nothing really bad happens in the next four years. (laughs) And, uh, oh boy. Oh boy. Well, I, I think we, we, uh, should wrap this up. But uh, pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it. This was uh, interesting. Some memories, pleasant memories, <laughs> not, not so pleasant memories of Iraq, but now important to go back over and to try to think through, obviously. I mean, it is an interesting and unusual moment. I mean, it's not a great moment uh, in American history with Trump and the after effects, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe somehow, you know, these things can sometimes reverse faster than one thinks, right? Somehow we could have come out of this in a bit healthier in a few years, maybe. Is that possible? Or am I just kidding myself? Well, again, I keep, uh, my listeners know this, I keep emphasizing this disinformation universe that yeah. seems to yeah, expand. Problem. And, you know, I wrote that book, Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot, yeah. and other observations, and he was kind of the big bang. And it just seems like this with Fox and then the internet, and it's just expanding, you know? Yeah. And uh, that's pernicious, uh, I mean, and dangerous. And having a, a party kind of just echoing it and amplifying it, you know? So it's not just... Which is the scariest part, which is yes. like, really, guys? Come on, you know? Right. Have you thought about maybe being responsible? Nah. No. Nah. No. I want to get real. I want to get reelected. I want to get... The only way I can not get reelected is if I lose the primary to right. a Republican to my right. So I'm going to be, I'm going to keep being a nut. <laughs> I'm going to keep backing nutcase thing. Um, well, keep up uh, the fight from your side, and I'll keep up the fight from my side. And we'll maybe you know meet there, and I look forward to that. And uh, good luck, and, and thanks for having me. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. 
Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.